The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is Brian. I, I just want to say uh, today's episode is with Mike Lupica, who's a, a hero of mine and great. And we'll start in a second. I'm blown away by the letters you've been sending me at the moment BK at gmail.com. Keep them coming. It's really inspired me. I'm so glad to know that no matter what's going on in the world, so many of you want me to talk about what's going on in the world. But also I've loved hearing the stories of how the conversations that I've had over these past few years with inspiring creative people have actually helped you to do the thing that, that you do or you want to do. And so I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to ignore the world. I can't ignore it. It's going to come up. It comes up in this conversation with Lupica right at the beginning. But I'm determined to do some version of the show that's familiar to you while staying uh, honest and true to how I'm feeling. I'm also determined to get people on like Adam Carolla uh, who don't see the world the way that I do uh, or the way that many of you do, because I think we can all learn from that and understand understanding the way everybody thinks is, is never a bad thing. And so I'm going to keep doing this and I urge you uh, keep listening, keep spreading the word and definitely keep letting me know how it's hitting you. It, it, it means a ton to me to, to hear it. So thanks, and uh, Mike Lupica coming up. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled that my uh, good friend and also someone who, uh, even from when I was in diapers, was a hero to me, the great Mike Lupica, a longtime columnist for The Daily News, you know him from ESPN Sports Reporters. Maybe you read his books when you were growing up, his, his books that are targeted to teens, uh, all of which were my son's favorite books when he was those ages. And um, Mike also writes about politics and is one of the people I check in with in my regular life uh, when the world is going crazy to uh, just take my own temperature on it and uh, when the Knicks are bad, which means, uh, you know, I check in from time to time. So, uh, Mike, thanks. And Mike is now the host of uh, his own podcast, which is terrific, and I was on it. And if you like this show, you'll love his show because, uh, you know, he's been doing all this longer than I have and is excellent at it. Mike, thanks for being here. It's great to be with you, Brian. So, man, let's just get right into, you know, I want to go through sort of how you became Mike Lupica, but I, I also just reading your last column in the Daily News, which people can find online, and was about the press and their relationship with our incoming president. I, I could see you wrestling with yourself to find hope. So I want to I want to understand how do you balance the need for hope and optimism with your own pragmatic, cynical, columnist nature? You know, how do you look for it, and 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 what's the utility of it? Well, to um, the legendary actor drop, I was emailing with Tom Hanks the other day. There you go. No, it's it, we we have an uh, we, we, I met him a long time ago, and then a lot of my buddies were in Lucky Guy with him mm -hmm. on Broadway, which was a tremendous um, experience for them, and uh, so we kind of uh, reconnected. And he gave that wonderful speech um, at MoMA about a month ago that I wrote a column about, and I sent him an email the other day, and I basically said, "Has anything happened yet that makes you?" optimistic. And he's, you know, and he basically said, no, but let's wait and see him govern. You, you and I talked about this 
when we did my podcast. And, and all I, I, as an American, as an American, I want him to do well, despite all the things that I hate about how he got here. Okay. We, 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 we can, we can talk about that stuff to fairly well. All I know is if he does well, we do well. Okay. And, and by the way, there's nothing that he's done since being elected that makes me think that's going to happen. <laughs> right. But, yeah. But, I keep hoping that if he could figure out how to pull this off, he can figure out how to govern. And and for people who who aren't like hanging on every word I write or say, the column begins with that he cannot continue to govern with the untouchable school of governance. And I quote the, the, yeah, Sean Connery, the great Sean Connery, uh, David Mamet line about the gunfight and the knife. You pull a knife, you pull a gun, they send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the board. That's the Chicago way. Well, it's also the Trump way, okay? And I was, my son is a big fancy pants producer over at CBS now, and he, and he says he is incapable of getting out of the campaign mode. He, he's still trying to knock down Lion Ted and Little Marco and Low Energy Jeb and Crooked Hillary, and I'm not saying that a switch is going to be thrown next Friday on Inauguration Day, and he's going to start listening to his better angels. I don't know if he has any better angels, okay? But I, I also think that he's egotistical enough and desperate to be loved enough that he doesn't want to come and fuck this up, okay? And so he's... A guy who acts like, this is a longer answer than you wanted, but a guy who acts like he doesn't give a rip what anybody thinks is obsessed with what people think. And he is in so many ways, and I've known this guy for 30 years, okay? And in so many ways, and I I just, I, I can't think of him as this evil cartoon villain yet. He's desperate to be loved. He's desperate to run with the cool kids. I was talking about this on um, MSNBC the other day. He doesn't want to be the guy panhandling to have big names come in before at, at his inauguration. He wants them to come. So that his need for approval is the one thing I'm kind of hanging my hat on. And and you're looking for that. I guess part of what I'm I'm trying to understand is throughout – you know, as you know, um, I have been reading you for as long as almost as long as you've been doing this. And, you know, since I started picking up the newspapers, which I did when I was young, and I think that it's a thread that runs through a lot of what you do. And I, I certainly see it in the books you write for younger people and in so many of your columns, which is trying, which is sort of understanding the dark nature of hum- humanity, sports, stars. But trying to find for yourself, almost it seems, an ability to a reason to root. Yes, yes, Brian, you've you've cracked my my personal code, especially as a sports columnist. Okay, and and I've been doing this a long time, and I think the general impression of me is a guy that is constantly banging away at people. But if I showed you the whole body of my work. I so often, so much more praise sports than look to rip people. I I come to sports looking to celebrate it. I, you, you, we've talked about this 
before. I look at sports as high art. When I go to a game, especially with my sons, um, and, and it's, it, you've experienced the same thing I do. I, I see sports through their eyes now, and it keeps me current. And I don't wear their asses out talking about the good old days. But every time I go to a game, I hope I'm going to see something I never saw before. I, you know, I grew up a Giants fan, and but I was extremely conflicted last week because I have become an outrageous, pathetic Aaron Rodgers fanboy. Right. Okay. Because, yeah. because, and here's why: because he's LeBron. Okay. He may never win another title, but nobody has ever played that position better. And I was going to say, it's not like we haven't seen him throw those hail Aaron passes before. But, but if you're a sports fan and you're sitting there. Watching the end of the first half, how can you not get knocked on your ass thinking, no, 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 he can't possibly throw that pass yes. again, can he? No, it's true. I, I, how do you, how do you, so I understand that, that part that that's how, that you allow yourself to be carried away by that as we do so that you get to live like a fan too. But how do you square that with the other side of your brain, the, the part of your brain that also exists in these columns, which is the, where you can't help but see the dark machinations behind all of it and the downside and the inevitable downfall, not of Aaron Rodgers, let's say. And and it seems like there's almost a, a wrestling match going on a lot of the time in in your heart. Yes. And and it's 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 much more difficult writing about politics. I, I made this change about ten years ago and people didn't even kind of pay attention to this change that I was making. But if if you have children if you have children, it was like I couldn't, I, I couldn't uh, uh, jibe um, doing what I do for a living and sitting out the bigger issues of of the world. And I'm not saying that I haven't changed a, a single important mind, okay, writing about politics. But at least I feel that I'm making some sort of co- uh, contribution. So yeah, I watched this thing play out. You know, Costas and I talk about this all the time. Unfortunately, we live in a world where nuance is is under assault constantly. Yes. Okay, the yes. president was a thousand percent right the other day. People live in a bubble, and more and more, you know, that's why I'm. I think the other day in that column, I think I'm never going to write fake news ever again. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you said what? This it's the new OMG. I loved that. Yeah. FN OMG. You know, WTF. Okay. But there is no fake news. Here's what the news is. And I tried to get at that as quickly as I could in that column. People think the news is what they want it to be now. They think that the news is what they want to hear. If there's one code that Trump has cracked, he tells people what they want to hear. And so he can stand up there in a country where he won what? 27% of the people who actually live in this country voted for him, okay? But he he can go around and say, we won in a landslide. Okay, let's use some shorthand on that. WTF, what what kind of landslide, okay? But there's enough slow-thinking people out there that are buying into that. So the, the trick for me going forward is, how do you continue? You know, it's the old Spencer Tracy. You, you know the quote better than I do. They asked Spencer Tracy one time his, you know, his philosophy of, of acting. And he, it was something like, you plant your feet, try not to bump into the furniture and tell the truth. Okay? Yeah. And it's a wonderful definition of what, of your world. Okay? So how do I do that? But also not have my hair get on fire 
with every single tweet from this guy. Okay, because if not, if we all do that, you know, we're, we're going to be a country on the verge of a nervous breakdown every single day for the next four years. Well, yeah, it's like, how do you train yourself not to live in reaction is what you're talking about, right? How do you not just live in reaction? Yes. And so I keep saying, I'm not going to be the guy who prosecutes every dumb tweet from Donald Trump. But And so... I've tried to actually temper my language because if you be, if if you're just another screamer every time he pisses you off, yes. then it just become. Do you know what I mean? I do. Brian, it becomes more noise. I, um, I do, Mike, and I'm searching. I mean, this is part of the thing for me is I'm searching for like where to plant. So when that's meant, where to plant my feet because I think all of us have to decide sort of where and when you plant your feet here. And how to not live reacting, but actually to observe app and then really like kind of apprehend what's going on, process it, and then decide on on actions to take. And I, I love the fact that you're you're still writing about sports. You're still able to imbue that stuff with passion and, and you really still find a way to care about it and that you're devoting this this time. Do you imagine it's the same reader? One question I, I, I really wanted to ask you is like who your ideal reader is, who you're picturing turning on the computer or picking up the paper and reading you and who you're writing for. And is it the same person you're talking to when you're, you know, in the chair talking on TV about sports uh, when you're writing politics? Is it different? Like who, who, what's that image in your head? You know, it's funny. Uh, uh, not long ago, maybe a month ago, it might've been a little longer um, than that. My, my, my middle son, Alex lives down in the West village and we were going to have dinner and, you know, I, I was doing my single favorite thing to do in New York city, which is wander aimlessly. Okay. You can, yeah. it's, I feel the same way in London. You set me down anywhere and it's a nice day. I'll walk around and, and I've been doing this long enough that, that people will, you know, it's, it's not like I'm a movie star, but people kind of, New Yorkers kind of know me by now. And I'm, I'm walking past the three lives bookshop and I'm, I'm coming out and, and this guy just falls into uh, step with me. And, and we're walking down the street and he introduces himself. And he says to me, you know, I've been reading you since you, you were a kid writing about the Knicks. But he said, I'm glad you started writing about politics. Okay. And I told him what I told you, that, that I just felt it was a natural progression. And it, it's not that I still don't love writing about sports, but and I know how to do it. Okay. Sparky Anderson, I said to him one time, what's the best part of managing at this stage of your career? And he smiled and he said, I know how to do it now. Okay. So if you put me, if you put me standing next to a jet engine and gave me a laptop and told me something big had just happened in sports, I can write you a column in a half an hour. Okay. It's like, it's like being the rain man. It's, it's an odd skill to have, but what politics makes you come at it in a different way, except when I started it, I said to the guy who really, uh, Ed Kozner, um, who once edited Esquire and is still a dear friend of mine, and the late Bill Boyle, who was my managing editor, I'm going to come at this exactly like I come at it in sports. So if you're a big guy in politics, I'm never going to punch down, right. but but you're if I think you fucked up, you're going to get it, okay? And so here's something that happened early on, okay? And after... Those editors had moved on at the Daily News because, you, you know, Brian, I've, I've, I've played for more editors than Yankees yes. used to play for <laughs> yeah, George for sure. Runner managers. Okay. Yeah. And Nick's played for Nick coaches. 
So um, I, I kicked the shit out of Giuliani, which I've happily done for, for years. And I salute you for it, sir. Yeah, he's, he's the most uh, overrated figure in the history of politics in our city and, and maybe um, American politics for simply doing his job. And, but that's another story for another day. So anyway, I write this column, and Martin Dunn is my editor at the Daily News. And by sheer chance, he has um, breakfast that day with Sonny Mindell, who's one of uh, Giuliani's Coke characters, carriers, okay? And he calls, he calls me up later, and he said, Sonny just wants you to know that Rudy really has no problem with what you wrote today. And I said, Martin, you have to do me a favor. Please call back Sonny and and disavow her of the notion <laughs> that I give a shit whether Rudy loved my column today or not. And that, <laughs> that's sort of the way I've approached this thing. And and again, my beliefs, I hold them firmly, okay? And I you know, I don't know if we talked about this at the podcast or not. When Trump started out, Brian, I thought it was gonna be a hoot, okay? I never thought he was going to get the nomination. I never thought he was going to be president. But when I looked at those yayas on the stage with him, from the start, I wrote, wait a minute, why is he any less valid than Mike Huckabee or Carly Fiorina or, you know, so many of those guys on the stage? And then, of course, it, you know you know what happened. Yes, and I, the, the, the Giuliani thing is so interesting to me, that story, because a question I had, and it's different in sports and politics, but one of the things I've always really admired about you and wondered if, if it was conscious or if you just naturally had the skill, but you always seem to have the ability to, to be able to write critically about these giants of sport and really write critically, not pull your punches, and still have them treat you with respect, sort of still keep your relationships. You know, I'm thinking about Connors, for one, and as, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been able to make the Jimmy Connors documentary if it wasn't, you know, if it weren't for you and Fowler vouching for me to Jimmy. But the fact that you are able to, and they all know it, you're going to write about them. You're going to write what you see. If they collapse, you're going to say they collapsed. You're not going to mince words. Yet they end up still liking you, regarding you. They don't think you're a cheap shot artist. How, how did that happen? Was that a goal of yours? Was that like conscious or did it just happen somehow? You know, it's, it, it's funny. Um, Steinbrenner, no matter what, always took my calls and I respected that. Okay. Because we, we used to slug it out in the place that Louis Carnesecca called Macy's window in another time in, in another world. Okay. And he, he always took my phone calls and it was extremely informative because it, it said to me, okay, we both understand the game. I mean, I didn't think it was a game when I criticized him. And when he came back at me, in fact, there were times when I would write Dear George letters in the Daily News, yes. and then he would write Dear Mike letters. And it was really, right. it, it became kind of a fun thing. Connors and I, I think I told you this the day we did my taping for, which, by the way, um, you know, I, I'm a, a complete fanboy for that. It's, it's one of the best sports documentaries ever done because, nice. no, you know why? I, and I, you know, you could say I have the attention span of a gnat, but you know why? Because you did what I do, okay? 
sports is about moments, Brian. It, it's, I tell people all the time, if you see something great happen in sports, you do not need to see it replayed a hundred times on sports center. It is burned into your memory and it is burned into your heart and it is burned into your imagination. Okay. And it stays there forever. Um, an old editor of mine named Jim Wilsey said, your game is the frozen moment. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, the thing, you, you know what the thing is that night. The game you're watching, you'll find the thing yes. where the night turned, okay? And you captured a moment in time that, you know, I tell people all the time, it's one of the greatest things I ever saw in sports because ultimately we come to sports saying, surprise us, surprise me today, you know, surprise me. And here's this 39-year-old forgotten guy and and, you know, away he goes to the semifinals and just it's, yes. it's the greatest single thing. And I love tennis that I ever saw. And but he's now as good a friend as I've ever made in sports. We've known each other for 40 years. We went five years without speaking. Right. That's the thing I don't write. You guys went five years without speaking because you were critical of him. You did the thing that you do. And he got pissed at it. But on the other side of it, is it that they understand that you're rooting? Do you think it's as simple as that they understand you want the best out of them? I think so. Hey, listen, um, Bobby Mercer was one of the dearest people uh, I've ever known in sports. Okay. And he passed away much too soon. And the problem was doing it as long as I've done it is. You- I'm just going to tell Bobby Mercer who replaced Mantle and Louis Carnesecca, who Mike referenced before is a New York legend. But for people who don't know, he coached St. John's when Chris Mullen and Walter Berry and all those people were on St. John's and, and uh, is a great New York figure. Yeah, can't you just footnote this podcast when we're through? Sure. I mean, okay, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll have that. a no. We'll have a bibliography. It'll sure. be fine. That'll okay. Be great. But Bobby Mercer was was a sweet and wonderful man. And at the end of his career, I forget what he did something or said something, and I criticized him. And he came up to me at the batting cage one day, and he said, "I want to talk to you about that column." And I said, "Bob, stop right there." And he goes, "What do you mean?" I said, Bobby, I've probably written 50 complimentary <laughs> columns about you in your life. Did you ever call me on my birthday? Wow. And he actually started laughing and he said, I get it. I said, so if we didn't talk about those columns, we're not going to start today because you're pissed off. And somehow he understood where I was, the place I was coming from on that. So very few guys, very few guys that I have known over time. I mean, you know, Daryl yes. Strawberry once, who was one of the biggest phonies of all time, threatened to uh, stuff me in a garbage can. Right one time in spring training, Brian Koppelman, for a column that Dick Young had written. Right. Well, that's hilarious. That's perfect. He said, if you ever write about my private life again, I'm going to stuff you in a, in a garbage can. And I said, well, A, you probably can. But B, I've never written about your private life. And he starts citing this thing. And I said, that you're right, that you ought to be pissed off at that. But I, I didn't write it. Okay. That's, that's perfect. But this makes me think of, uh, this makes me think about that when you mentioned Mercer in the, the earlier days, I was thinking about what it must've been like to cover baseball. I've always wanted to ask somebody this question, which is about the amphetamines and the, so I don't know if people know this now, but, but it was, and, and I, and I, I think of it as, as, as sort of 
there was a lot more, it seems to me, an understanding or a code amongst the journalists and the ballplayers. Like, we're going to be ding you guys on these things. We're not going to ding you on that. So live with it. And, and part of it was every baseball team had a jar that what a jar or a bowl with what they call beans, which were amphetamines on their like on a table in all the locker rooms. All the journalists knew it. Everybody knew it, it was an open secret. Nobody ever wrote about it. And one, I'm wondering, what, like, if you've thought about it since and wondered why none of you guys ever wrote about it. Listen, I, I didn't know. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about drugs and baseball. Okay, I, I once wrote a book about the home run summer of of, and I'll, I'll absolutely wear this. Okay. Yes. I, I wish I knew then what I know now. Okay. But the idea that I looked the other way on steroids is bullshit. I, I wrote a, a a lovely book. I thought about my sons experiencing the kind of home run summer with me right. that I had experienced with my dad with Mantle and Merritt yes. in 1961. Okay? You're talking about Sosa and Maguire, that they saw Sosa and Maguire, and you saw Maris and, Maris and Mantle. You can go through that book, and the word steroids doesn't appear. Now, uh, yeah, was I dumb about this? Was I not processing what was happening statistically in front of my eyes? Yes, I was. No, I'm, I'm asking a different question which specifically about the amphetamines, because to me, they were such a thing that everybody, I mean, you can say you didn't know about it, but I mean, everyone called them beans. They were on every every table in every locker room. It was um, an understood thing is my, the way that I've been told it by people. But I guess it's also the same thing as ballplayers having affairs back then. I guess what I'm talking about is like, um, was there something that built a different kind of trust between between the athletes and the people covering them and do you think something was lost in the the sort of now clear lines of demarcation between them yeah i think there was a greater level of trust and i i go back to my my heroes and my predecessors okay dan, dan jenkins to my mind is the greatest sports writer yeah, who ever lived okay and and you know the golfers knew that they could talk to him Okay. And it's, you know, I was talking to Fred Stolle one day at the, uh, the U S open a couple of years ago player, and, he, yeah. and he was just, he was talking about the bygone days where, where, you know, once you left the courts and once you were in the bar, there was an understanding, but you know, I, 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 I look back now on the, the, the whole thing about amphetamines, because it, this is a very interesting conversation because there are people who want to, um, provide cover for the Bonses and Clemenses and say, well, wait a minute, what about amphetamines? It's completely different. I agree. I think it's different. That's why I'm asking about it. Yeah. It's completely different. And, you know, I mean, I used to, the, the one thing that I used to hear the joke about was that there was the player's coffee and then there was everybody else's coffee. <laughs> That's you hilarious. Know, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, 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 you'd walk over with your cup because, you know, again, this is a different time. And, and somebody say, I don't think you want to try that one. That's you know, really uh, funny. Right. Take that one and put, you know, a little cream and sugar. You'll be fine. But you can imagine the scandal that would be now, right? Oh, sure. And, and yes, what we found out in sports is what we found out in, in, in the world. Okay. Which is if you did something, people are going to find out like Trump, if there's something in Russia, I firmly believe we will find out about it. My my friend Don Imus <laughs> used to joke. His here was his theory of crime and punishment. Okay, do we have to tell people Don Imus? No, go ahead. They know. Okay, he said they're cursing right now. Yeah. No, no, no. He said if you get arrested, you did something. 
Right. It's, it's, my, it's one of my favorite definitions. He said, I don't know if you're guilty of what they arrest, but if you got arrested, you did something. And so if Trump did something that Putin has on him, I, I actually believe we'll find out. All right. I want to back up a little bit uh, because your career is I- incredible. And in a way you are, listen, a guy gets to your August age, you know, you're like Mount Rushmore. You're right up there. Uh, wh- I, what I want to know is when did you know that you were a writer? Like for, for going back to the very beginning of it, how did you figure out that you were a writer and who first recognized your gift for it? And like, how did your family take it? Like, what was that all like for you? Okay. I'm going to try to bumper sticker this. Okay. Because Taylor Lupica, my beautiful wife, who you know, when the kids were little, she'd say, and they wouldn't go to sleep, she'd say, honey, go up and tell them the story (laughs) of your career, because that's always acted like a powerful uh, narcotic. Yeah, sure. Yeah. She said, you know, Zach's a little colicky. Tell him how you got started. But you should know, Mike, that uh, instead of, uh, you should just know the people who listen to this podcast, many of them are people who are trying, are, are, have really thought about like, um, can I do this? Can I make it? Do I have the talent? How do I know? Like, we are interested in this. So unlike your kids, we, we won't fall asleep. All right. Here's here. I, when I was in high school, I was writing for the school paper. When I got to Boston College, I was writing for three school papers and, and very quickly working nights at the Boston Globe. But, but I, I, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories about being hit by lightning and yes. falling out of trees and landing on my feet. Okay. I believed I was a good writer. I, I, I joke now, I, w- w- you know, I do two books a year for young readers. So I'm constantly talking at schools and I, I always tell the kids, you have to buy these books because I have no other skills. <laughs> if, if the writing thing goes south, don't count television. I have nothing to fall back on. Okay. Somebody at BC, when I was writing for the school paper, after like three columns for the Heights, sent my little clip stack to Ernie Roberts, who was the sports editor of the Boston Globe. And he called me up one day and he said, would you like to write a piece for the Boston Globe? And I said, first, I thought it was I was being punked by one of my friends. And I said, yes, Mr. Roberts, I would. And there was there was one um, baton twirler every year at BC known as the Golden Girl. Her name was Pam Lake. Would you write about Pam Lake? I said, I'd be happy to. I write a piece about Pam Lake, uh, the Golden Girl. and, And the lead was she has the best pair of hands on the BC campus, but she doesn't play football. That was the lead. Okay. Yeah. It it does it's it's you know, it's not the birth of a nation, but you know, I got by with it. They put it on the front page of the Boston Globe. And as Pete Hamill says, from that moment on, the template was cut. So my that was the narcotic for me. And so now while I'm in college, I'm running off for the Boston Phoenix, which was the village it wasn't yeah, it, the it's like the voice village of voice of Boston. Yep. Sure. I, I covered Riggs versus King. I, 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 I'm writing for them. I'm writing for Boston Magazine. I'm writing features. This is all before I graduated. And are you studying at all? Like, so you just threw yourself in. You basically threw yourself into this, and you figured out how to get by at school. Yeah, no, I was I was a good I, I was a good student. I, no, no, I was I graduated with honors, Brian. I I you know what I. I'm kind of a gene. No. And so anyway, so listen, so yes. anyway, so, so, so now I'm doing this and my teachers were extremely understanding because they know I'm, I'm, yes. I'm riding around in a Volkswagen bug and I'm having the time of my freaking life. Okay. They asked me at the globe to cover the Boston Patriots as their regular beat writer when I was a senior in college. 
And I said, I'm very flattered, but I I just want to be a senior in college. They say, okay. Between then and when I graduate, another guy comes in as a sports editor. I've been the fair-haired boy there for a long time. And he says, "We, we can offer you a position covering high school football. I'm 21 years old. I said, excuse me? I said, they offered me the Patriots a year ago. I said, I covered high school football when I was in high school. And he said, well, that's all we got. He was going to, I don't know what it, but the deal was I walked out of the globe and my life would have been completely different if he had given me a real job. So right. I freelance for a year in Boston. I'm writing for the Phoenix still. I'm writing, um, Jimmy Breslin became aware of me and I started writing for his friend, Jim Bellows and for the Washington. Well, Bre- I just want to say Breslin was like the most famous columnist in the country for 40 years. So he somehow noticed you. That was a bit, I mean, that was a big deal. Did he reach out to you and just call you one day or write you a letter? Sitting at the Boston Phoenix. I'm sitting at the Boston Phoenix. I pick up the, somebody says, Louis gets for you. I pick up the phone. He goes, Mike Lupica. I said, yes. He said, this is James Breslin of <laughs> New York city. And I say, that's very fucking funny and hang up. True? You really hung up on him? Yeah. It could, because it, it, it yeah. can't It was like God be. calling. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So it can't possibly be. Okay. He calls back and he says, uh, Bellows was looking for a young guy. And he says, I'm over at Charlie Daly's house in Cambridge. Bring your clips over. I said, great. I hang up the phone. I rush back to my little dinky apartment in Brookline. I get my clips. And then I realize I have no idea who Charlie Daly is. <laughs> That's he, fantastic. I, Brian, I call the Cambridge Police Department. I said, I'm very sorry to bother you. This is not an emergency. I said, but it's kind of an emergency. I said, um, this is Mike Lubick from the Boston Phoenix. Do you happen to know who Charlie Daly is? And they said, yes, he's a vice president at Harvard. He's actually the father of a great columnist named Michael Daly, who wrote with me at the Daily News and is now at the Daily Beast. Okay. I, I rush over to this address, and there is the great man. And, and, uh, I come in, he sits down at the, at the dining room table and his first wife, Rosemary was coming up to mass general for, for chemo in those days. She passed away from cancer. He takes my pathetic little clip file out of my manila envelope, got his reading glasses at the end of his nose, flips through them, flips through them. He picks out one. He goes, send this one to Bellows. Very nice to meet you. That's the end of my meeting with the, the great man. And so that touches off me writing for the Washington Star and covering tennis for a little bit. The next thing that happens that fall, I'm covering the U.S. Open tennis at Forest Hills. That's how old I am. For the Washington Star. And I get a call that Ike Gellis, the sports editor of the New York Post. This is the pre-Murdoch New York Post. This is Dorothy Schiff's New York Post. Would like to meet me because somebody on the staff has been reading the Boston Phoenix. Okay, this is how things happen. Around what year is this, do you think? This is 1975. And so this isn't the day of Google where you can just print out your stuff. All of my clips are back in Boston. So I I talked to Mr. Gellis on the phone. I said, I have to fly home and get my stuff. So the the open ends on on, on Sunday. I fly back on Monday. I come back that afternoon with my stuff, and I have a meeting with Ike Gellis, at the old South Street office of the New York Post the next day, and I bring in my clips again. And uh, he's kind of giving me a hard time, and I, I screw up all of my 21-year-old courage, and I said, Mr. Gillis, you called me. So here's the deal. Read my clips tonight. If you like them, 
you're going to offer me a job. And if you don't, then you're not. And no harm, no foul. Where'd you get the, where'd you get the moxie? I don't know. That's the word Hamill used. And, 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 but I did. I, 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 I've only, I have had, I'm, I had, a, I had confidence in, in my ability to, to write. So anyway, so he hires me. This is October of 75. This sounds like a, a shaggy dog story, but it's not. And so the first week I'm in New York on this, what is called a tryout period, I write like a feature about Johnny Majors, who was coaching Army at the time. I write like four features. The next, I come in on Friday of the first week, and there's my schedule for the next week. And the Knicks are starting their season. And it's Nick's game story, Nick's sidebar, Nick's, 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 Nick's. And so I go back to Mr. Gallus's office, yeah. and he's doing what he did for 25 years when he wasn't running the best sports session in New York, which is talking to his bookie. And Perfect. he's on the phone, and I'm kind of shifting my way. And, and I said, Mr. Gallus, could just, he puts his, you know, he's going like, give me the Mets and six and a half. So he puts his hand over the phone. He said, What? I said, Mr. Gellis, I looked at my schedule for next week, and I couldn't help but noticing you got me covering the Knicks as they're opening their season. And he goes, yeah. I said, Mr. Gellis, Lenny Lewin covers the Knicks. And he looked at me, and he said, not anymore. And he goes back to the phone. He goes, give me the Phillies. Give me the Dodgers. <laughs> give me." And so he had hired me out of compl- – to, to say he had hired me out of obscurity – is insulting to actually obscure people, okay? And in that moment, my life changes, okay? Because I'm the Knicks were the biggest beat at the New York Post. And it turns out, here's here's like one of those Paul Harvey, now you know the rest of the stories. The person who read the Knicks is a man named Joe Valerio. Joe Valerio was a sports writer at the New York Post who has been my producer at the Sports Reporters and my friend for 25. He he was the one who handed the Boston Phoenix to Eichels. Now, I'll tell you one more story, and then we'll go on and we can talk about whatever you want to, okay? So I cover the Knicks for 14 months at the New York Post. I'm now, I think I turned 24 by then. And I go into Paul Sand, who's the editor of the paper, and I said, I'd like a column now. And he looked at me and he said, Paul Zimmerman is my column columnist. Please get out of my office. Okay. At this same time, Dick Young is the king of New York at the Daily News. Okay. He has been the king of New York sports columnists for a long time. Right. But he's getting older and crankier and more right wing. And Mike O'Neill, the editor of the Daily News, decides that he needs a younger voice. His best friend, as it turns out, is, is Michael Burke, who, for people who don't know, is a man who ran the Knicks, the Garden, the Yankees. Ringling Brothers at Barnum and Bailey Circus and was with Wild Bill Donovan in the OSS during World War II. He's one of the most glamorous figures in the history of New York City. Not the greatest sports executive, but like one of the coolest dudes ever. And O'Neill takes Burke to lunch and he tells him what he's looking for in a columnist. And I don't find this out, Brian, until like much later. And Michael Burke told me in a note. And he said, I could give you a dozen names who fit the bill exactly for what you're looking for. But there's a kid covering the Knicks who's going to be better than all of them. Wow. And on that recommendation, I became a columnist at the New York Daily News. And so somehow there are forces at work 
in the universe. It's why I tell kids all the time, make sure you do your best work every single day, whatever you're doing, because you don't know if that's going to be the day that the person who can change your life sees your work. Yeah, you don't know who's watching, who's listening, who's paying attention, so you can't phone it in. Well, this is my next question for you was, when did you get your own column and when did you know you were good at it? But the question beneath that is why? What made you after 18 months say, I want a column? What was it about uh, having a column that spoke to you in a, in a different way? How did you know you were someone who, who wanted to like lead from, from his opinions? Okay. I, because Breslin and Hamill, who are, are now my friends, were my heroes. I, my only right. plan when I was at Boston College was to get to New York, write a column, and then someday write books the way they did. That, that was it. That was my only, that was like my only plan. And, and, and it became clear quickly, even when I was the beat writer on the Knicks, they started giving me columns r- right away. They, they had this thing called the working press column in the old New York Post in those days, where the beat writers would get columns. And so my voice, I, I, I can't explain it to you. It's, it, it, it's, it, I, I can't explain it. I just, more and more people started to say, oh, you've got a voice. And Hamill says it's like a boxer's left hand. You either have it or you don't. It takes you a while to find it, okay? And yes. at the start, I was, it was too much Breslin and too much Hamill. And oh, yeah, and, we all wear our influences heavy at the beginning, even as we're trying, even as there are moments where our own voice breaks through and then through doing it, you try to, you forge your own voice, almost competing with them. You know, Hemingway talks about fighting with the dead guys. You, you basically find a way to force your voice up through the influence, right? Yeah. And, but it's not like something that I was consciously doing. I just, yeah. I wrote the way I wrote. And then people, I mean, Clyde Frazier, who I, who I love now. He was at the end of his career there, and he once told Tony Kornheiser that by writing that he was losing a step, I, quote, ran him out of New York. And I'm thinking, nah, not exactly. Well, yeah, if you look at the history of the Knicks, they, you, <laughs> we can't blame anyone but the Knicks for not understanding the romance of keeping him in New York and letting him go to Cleveland. That was crazy. So now I get a column at the news, and young... Dick Young hates me pretty much right away. He'd been kicking the shit up, Tom Seaver. Sure. And I just, and I kind of defended Seaver. And he also had the title of sports editor at that time. That is, this, Brian, it's like my fourth or fifth column. I'm now pissed off the great man. He calls me into his office and he says, I'm, uh, you can't do that. I'm not going to get into a pissing contest with a member of my own staff. And I said, but Mr. Young, I was hired to write a column, and I thought my column is my column, and your column is your. He said, it doesn't work that way. Okay. Breslin's down the hall. I leave the meeting. I go down to Breslin, um, and I tell him what has just happened. And, and this is why I, Jimmy Breslin is, not only will always be my hero, but, but I, th- this memory is, is, is still shining all this time later. He grabs me by the arm. He walks me through the city room. He walks me into Mike O'Neill's office. Now, Mike O'Neill could have been in there with the Pope and the president, and then they might have found Amelia Earhart, okay? Breslin doesn't give a rip, okay? He walks into O'Neill's office, and he points to me, and he says, tell him what you just told me. And I tell Mr. O'Neill what had just happened, and he looked at me, and he just passed away like a year and a half ago. He said, we're not having this conversation. He said, in fact... We never had this conversation, but he said, 
you write whatever the fuck you want to. Now get out of my office. And and from that moment on, I was I felt like I had solid footing um, at the Daily News that has sort of continued to this day. Well, we only got like halfway, and I know you have to go. We had to start late. Okay, so so all right, good. So from 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 there. Uh, you were often, you were clearly off and running. That's an incredible story. Um, and the fact that you didn't just like listen to that. I mean, most people would fold when sort of an eminence grease is telling them that most people would, would fold, but something made you go into Breslin's office, this idea that you had to be able to say what the fuck you wanted to say. And I think you still, I mean, you still do that, I think in every forum. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, th- there was a sense of, of that th- this wasn't, my idealized version of what the world was, you know, I mean, you got to remember. Well, that's a great, that's a great thing. I think that I think you just answered a question from the beginning of this. That's what you're doing, right? You're, you're still measuring the world as it exists against your idealized version of it in your columns all the time. Yeah. I mean, I never, I, when I was in in Boston at Boston college and I first became known for writing this column at the Heights. And it took me about 10 seconds to piss off the football coach. So I, I've always had that t- gift. Yes. Okay. But I, from the moment you realize that people actually are reading you, I've never approached it any differently than I did at Boston college. Okay. And so when you ask me who they are in college, it was my buddies. Okay. And now my wife jokes uh, with me when we, we will travel. Okay. It's not fancy people. That, that seem to be listening the closest to me. Okay. I, I mean, because of the political column, I, I talk to fancy people, but she, she always jokes. She says, it's the guy taking tickets. It's the guy, you know, doing the bags at LaGuardia. They're the guys she, she always, I see her smiling because those are the guys that I'm instantly in a conversation with. Yeah. What's interesting though, what's interesting though, it, it to me are really thought provoking and fascinating is that, while your column still swings from that place and you reach those people, I've watched you work the driving range at a charity golf tournament at, at exclusive country clubs. And those guys, you have a relationship with those guys too somehow. And I find that really um, – it's inspiring to me that you can live at both – at all the ends of the poles in a way, that you are able to walk through and talk to a billionaire and find a way to communicate with that person. And then also the biggest hug I saw you give was to a caddy who you recognized from 10 years before and who thanked you for like remembering him and giving him something. And I think this ability you have to kind of cut across these strata, because it's not fair to say you don't also collect the high and mighty. You do. You do. It's a big part of your shtick, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, one of the reasons why I like going on MSNBC now is because I, I think I, I don't talk like the wonks and the pundits do. That's right. You know, that's right. I, I come at it. Um, I, I was, in fact, a funny thing happened during the campaign because, um, Trump, Remember the day in Iowa where he held up the Bible and he was talking about his favorite passages and he said, "Oh, two, yeah, yes, two, two Corinthians." Okay, yes. now, okay, uh, you're talking to a little Catholic boy. Okay, so anybody with even a rudimentary knowledge of the Bible knows it's Second Corinthians. Okay, right. so I say on Morning Joe that next day I said, "Didn't that sound?" like the beginning of a joke. Two <laughs> Corinthians walk into a bar, okay? Yeah. 
and and within hours, Cruz had stolen it. Hilarious. <laughs> so I have a yeah no I I you, you I mean we spent enough time together you you know that that it, one of the things that I have fun doing the podcast with I, I told you this when you were on I just talk to who I want to talk to you yes, know I, I this conversation that you're talking about that I have with my readers or people who watch the sports reporters or, you know, the kids now who first started reading travel team when it came out in 2004, they're in their twenties now, yes. you know? And, and, and so it's, it's the same conversation. It, it's, you know, Bill Goldman, our mutual hero, you know, yes. we, we, that's his expression. You know, we'll talk about somebody great in the movies or sports. He'll say, Oh yeah, he's in the conversation. That conversation is what has carried me from Boston to here. I, I, it's, it's just, it's like Bill said, Bill and I did a book called Wait Till Next Year. Great it's book, kind yeah. of become a, like a crazy kind of a cult book. And it's, it was just one year in New York sports seen through the eyes of a crazy fan, fan Bill, and, and, and through me. And he's talking to Seymour Seawoff, who, who before you know, analytics ruled the world. The Elias Sports Bureau was like the capital of numbers, okay? It reminded me of the old line about Lenny Coppett, who was a great statistician, a great sports writer from the Times. Somebody once said, if you ever got hit by a car, um, um, decimal points would come spilling out of his ears, okay? And Seymour and Bill are talking one day, and I forget what they were talking about. And, and all of a sudden, Seymour says, Bill, you know what sports is? It's air. They had been talking about that play that Gail Sayers made a thousand years ago where he, he, pull, he was going to throw an option pass and he pulled it down. He made this amazing run. But Seymour said, you say mantle, I say maze. We start talking and it's the air in between us. It's the greatest definition I've ever heard about why we love sports. I've, I've been able, Brian, to exist in that air for 40 years. Well, that's a perfect place to end part one of our podcast on, because the next time I get you on here, which we have to do soon, I want to talk to you about what happened when you became a brand name and how you managed becoming as famous as the people you were covering, because I think that's its own, I think that's its own sort of lesson for people about what happens when you get everything that you want. But I love that this took us up to a place where you got everything that you want. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to me, man. Excuse me, I've been I've been suffering from hacking, not Russian hacking, but like real hacking. No, the Russians are hacking. I've seen what you've written. The Russians are hacking you too. You can count on it. But uh, we'll do it in in New York because I I the the, the story. All right, I'll tell you one more story. Can I tell you one more? Yeah, story? Yeah, I'm here, okay. man. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, okay, I'm going to tell you one more story. Okay, this is five million books for young readers ago. Okay, this is how it started for me. Yes. I, my middle son, Alex, gets cut from a 12-year-old travel basketball team for being too small, okay? And they didn't say it, but he and another boy got cut for being too small. And I'm telling Jeff Van Gundy, who's now on TV, used to coach the Knicks and the Rockets, and is a friend of mine, the story a couple of days later. And he said, you know, if this were the movies, you'd take all the kids who got cut, you'd start a team of your own, and you'd play the other team in town in the big game. And I said, I don't give a shit about the other kids. They didn't do anything wrong. I said, I just think that at 12, it shouldn't be like The Apprentice and you get fired. Right. Okay. Two days later, in a moment of sheer parental 
catcher in the rye, baby boomer insanity. I become the owner and general manager of a rogue 12-year-old <laughs> boys travel basketball That's team. awesome. I take all the kids who got cut. I hire a coach, and we're, we have, um, we have a, 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 a season. And I give these kids a chance to get their self-esteem back. They suck at the beginning. They get better. They start to beat teams that have beaten them. And I, when it's over, when it's over, I say to Esther Newberg, my agent, this is one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. And it's one of the great sports stories I've ever seen. She said, write a three-page outline for a novel. I said, okay. I send her a, a three-page outline for a novel about this little boy, Danny Walker, who gets cut for being too small. I fax the pages in at 10. At 1 o'clock, she says, we have a deal. I write a novel about, you know, loosely based on what had happened to us, okay? Brian, they print 20,000 copies of this book. I swear on my life, I think it's 19,000 too many. Okay, I think it's going to be a nice little stocking stuffer yeah. for the kids on my team and their families. It sell it, within ten days. It's number one on the New York Times. It sells half a million book, and it changes my life. So my life has been a series of random accidents. Taylor Lupica says, "You know, usually when a kid gets cut, he just gets cut, honey. You, no, you start a team, write a novel about it, and the novel changes your life." Now she says to me in retrospect, "Let's face it, you writing from inside the mind." of a 12-year-old seems like pretty much a perfect fit. Yeah, no-brainer right there, absolutely. Well, when you come back to New, when you come back to New York, we'll get in the a room together and we'll do part two of this in person. And um, thanks, Mike. Those books, as you know, uh, you know, those books that you wrote meant a ton to, to Sammy and still mean it. He still has those books and he's 21 now. He's, those books still are in his room and I'm sure they had a lot to do with why he's a writer. So. And the second season of Billions would be starting when? Yeah, uh, you'll get DVD. I'll get you a DVD probably a week before. Let me ask you one last question about Billions, okay? And uh, th this is this yes. is important. This has now become the Mike Lupica show. Go. No, no, no. I, I just, I have to know this because I think I might have asked you before, but but I can't remember what the answer is because, I, I, you know, uh -huh. I, I got a lot of, I got a lot of balls in Okay. Yes. When you started in your life, did you think that people would be choosing upsides to the extent that they did with Axe and Chuck Rose? It's the exact same thing that you say about doing your thing. Dave and I just knew we had this story we wanted to tell in our wildest dream. Would there be Team Axe and, and Team Chuck? I don't, neither of us would have allowed ourselves to think of it. No, we just had to tell the story. And then, you know, you throw it out there and you hope. February 19th, if people are listening to this, and they were like, hey, Kaufman doesn't talk about billions all the time in a show. Feb 19, showtime. All right, Lupica, I'll talk to you soon. You're yes. a good friend, and you are a giant talent, and I, I will continue to honor our friendship. <laughs>